What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Give and Go. It's your boy, Saltero, and I'm here with... Producer Rudd. That's right. Reynoso is still on vacation. He is not here. It's to the point where when he comes back, probably going to have to sit him down, have a long talk with him, because this is unacceptable. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell him, uh, look at here, son. We got yeah. to have a talk. <laughs> yeah. Y'all get on his ass in the comments. But now, realistically, he's my brother. Absolutely miss him and can't wait to have him back on the podcast, on the show, because, you know, we got a lot of football to talk when he gets back. But for now, we do another solo episode. I hope you all enjoy and let's talk football. A lot of major headlines happening across Europe this weekend, as there always is week in, week out. A notable one, Manchester United ending Arsenal's perfect run. All good things must come to an end. Anthony making his debut for Man United at Old Trafford, getting a goal. And what was what ended up being an incredible performance from Man United, I think that's now four wins in a row. And all of a sudden, they're only three points off of Arsenal, which is absolutely incredible considering how dire and grim things were at the beginning of the season. Another big headline, Bayern Munich being held for the second time in a row, this time against Union Berlin. Honestly, pretty shocking, but Berlin have gotten off to a flying start in the Bundesliga, so I'm really happy that they were able to get a point out of the game. Geraldo Becker cannot stop scoring. Another big headline, Erling Haaland getting his 10th Premier League goal in just five games, mathematically averaging two goals a game, which is absolutely ridiculous. And I kind of want to get more into that, just about Erling Holland specifically, but later. I kind of want Reynoso to be here, uh, and I, I think he'll have some things to say as well, so I kind of want to save that conversation for later. But specifically, the way I approached this weekend as far as watching football, I think I did a little fun experiment. Given that the World Cup is only two months away, I wanted to pick a national team and do a little scouting report. Essentially, look at the players for said national team and see how they're doing at club level. Look at their form, look at the club's form, and just see how their overall style of play is going right now, two months away from the World Cup. How is everyone doing for that specific team? So the team that I chose this weekend to kind of do scout out and see the players was Belgium a team who I think, I believe, are second on the FIFA World Cup rankings as far as national teams are concerned. I know people have their qualms with the rankings, but nonetheless, Belgium still are a very highly rated team, and there's a lot of expectation for this team going into the World Cup. So I wanted to see how their players are doing. Obviously, we have Kevin De Bruyne going off with Manchester City. Romelu Lukaku is back at Inter Milan, although he's a little bit injured right now. I think Roberto Martinez, the coach of Belgium, has a lot of choices to make. Even between the sticks, you know, he hasn't picked Courtois a lot. He's kind of been going with Mignolet recently, but at the end of the day, maybe it was just more of like a... Courtois was on a Champions League run, so he didn't really want to use them, considering that Belgium were pretty much already qualified for the World Cup. So he's been using a lot of players in rotation. But now that the World Cup is getting closer and closer and closer, I kind of wanted to see, if I was Roberto Martinez, who would I go with? And just to see, how are the Belgian players doing right now? And if you're a Belgian fan, are you concerned? Are you happy with how everyone's doing? So yeah, I ended up catching, what, I think five, six games with a specific emphasis on seeing players that would most likely play for Belgium this November at the 2022 FIFA World Cup. I ended up starting at the country of origin, the Belgian <laughs> League, catching 
Clue Bruges against mm -hmm. Circle Bruges. Now, specifically, before I even start talking about the players, I just want to talk about the atmosphere here, man, because this really got me. The atmosphere was electric. It was a derby, two Bruges clubs going at it. And I really, really enjoyed the atmosphere because it was just electric. It was loud, but what was really cool about it, man, is that the stadium's tighter. It's smaller. You know, it's a smaller league, right? right, right so yeah. there's just not going to be as much money. The stadiums are going to be smaller, but still it had the same amount of passion as you'd see at a Premier League game or at a Serie A game. And I'll be honest, I really don't catch that much Belgian League games. I don't know if a lot of people do, honestly, but this was actually a really, really fun game. But it kind of got me thinking just on a fun note was that, you know, that GeoGuessr game? <laughs> where, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, people will play. There'll be a Google map image and it'll just be like of a street or something. And they'll be able to say, oh, yeah, that street's in Australia. You know, yes. stuff like that. Incredibly impressive. Incredibly yeah. <laughs> impressive. I just realized you could do the same thing with football stadiums. Watching this Belgian game, I realized every league has a very specific aesthetic. That's so true. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You can play a game <laughs> where you just show a fraction of a stadium atmosphere and just flash it for half a second and be like, that's a game in Egypt. <laughs> or, oh, that's, that's a game in Belgium. Uh, it flashes, oh yeah, that's Chinese league. You could just right. immediately tell half a second based off of aesthetic because every league has its own look. And that's a big takeaway I got from looking at this Belgium game because wow. it just looked, I have no other way to put it, it just looked Belgian. <laughs> it really did. There's so many cool things about football. In this case, it was aesthetic. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to do that almost like an Instagram poll. Maybe we'll you know, yeah, tell Reynos yeah. to do that later to see if people can guess where stadiums are, you know? <laughs> exactly. That's we just put it like, where's this stadium? And it's like just half of it. Yeah, yeah oh yeah, that's Argentine grass. It's gotta yeah. be Argentine league. <laughs> they get really deep into it. They're like, oh, by the position of the sun and like at this point in time in the year, it'd be here. So <laughs> exactly, it'd be interesting man. to see like, oh, the shadows cast. It's, it's you know, Germany for sure. Whatever, <laughs> exactly, <you know? laughs> exactly. Yeah. But as far as the game was concerned, it got off to a really fiery start. Circle Bruges kind of went at Club Bruges, but ultimately the class of Club Bruges just took over pretty early on. The specific players that I really wanted to look at though was Hans Van Aken. So Roberto Martinez has been starting Hans Van Aken wide right for a lot of these past Belgian games. And I wanted to see how he was doing because, you know, playing in the Belgian league, it's not as high profile. He's not playing against the most tough opponents week in, week out. So I wanted to see what did Martinez see in Vanakin. And I'll be honest, didn't see much, man. I, really? Yeah. Wow. And the thing is, I can't be too critical because it's not like he had a bad game. He just didn't really do anything positive either. I would say it was a very neutral performance. He wasn't that involved. I was expecting him as captain of the club. I was expecting him to demand the ball, be involved offensively, kind of pull the strings create creatively for the club. But honestly, he had a pretty passive game. Neither added nor detracted from. Exactly. So I can't necessarily criticize his play, but I don't know if I'm hopeful as him starting as your right winger for the Belgium national team, especially if you're trying to make a deep run. Now, maybe I just caught him on an off day, but it's funny because even the commentator was like, dang, Vanaken is not really doing anything in this game. And I'm glad he said that because I know I wasn't crazy. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> call okay. Call him out. Yeah, like, I honestly called him out. I was like, okay, thank God. Vanaken wasn't doing anything in this game. So I thought that was very interesting. And it could be a point where maybe he's out of form. Maybe he's just out of form, which we could see maybe someone else starting in that position come World Cup time. Yeah, just cruising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's just kind of cruising. And it kind of makes sense. He's 30 years old just kind of getting out of his prime physically. So maybe that age is starting to kick in. 
Obviously, though, he's still highly touted as a player. And I could see moments where I'm like, okay, I can see what he could do. But as far as that 90 minutes was concerned, honestly, he didn't do much. I would say a player that really did stand out was the Danish fullback, Skov Olsen. He was very involved offensively, always in space, very direct player. I think he got a goal and an assist. So he looked good. <laughs> Maybe, good <stuff>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah non-Belgian player ended up popping off. Other players that I was interested in seeing was Simon Mignolet. He had a good game, didn't really have much to do because Circle Bruges' offense honestly was just less advanced compared to Clue Bruges' defense. Defense, so they just couldn't get any open shots. They really couldn't damage Clou Bruges in any certain way. So Minile honestly had a very good game, but he didn't really have to make any big, big saves. Another player I wanted to see was Diedrich Boyata. Boyata has been the main center back for Roberto Martinez in pretty much every game these past couple months. But I think he's coming off in some sort of injury or maybe he was in rotation because he ended up coming on late in the game when the game was already done. I think the game ended up being like 4-0. Ended up being a pretty easy game for Clue Bruges. Again, Circle Bruges did try, but ultimately you could just see there's a huge class difference as far as skill was concerned. Uh, not really much to take away from this game, honestly, from a Belgian perspective because no one really popped off. No one really took the game into their own hands to dominate. But from a club perspective, Bruges looked good. They looked good. Specifically, they have some big Champions League games coming up. As far as can they do anything in the Champions League group, probably not. I think that this is their fourth Champions League appearance in a row. But in each time, they haven't been able to get past the group stage. And I think we're going to see a similar thing. They're a well-run club. They have good players. But when it comes to the best and the best in Europe, they're always just a little bit... Uh, they're always just a little subpar in comparison. They can't make that deep run. They can't make that deep run. They don't have the personnel to really do it. I was hoping Hans Vanaken would kind of take the game and be like, okay, this guy can be a shining light for this club. But unfortunately, I did not see that in this game. Maybe I caught him on an off game, or maybe this is a sign of he really is out of form going into the World Cup. So that's my takeaway. Hans Vanaken might not be the starting right winger for Roberto Martinez come World Cup time, which that's interesting because who does he go at that point? I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, or would you say that he's saving all his energy and his focus for the World Cup? Circle Bruges aren't the best team in the Belgian league. They had a rocky start to the league. So maybe just in general, the Club Bruges players kind of were already like in the second, third gear. They didn't have to go into that top gear to really get the win. So maybe Hans Van Aken was just having a nice, easy day at the office and he knew he didn't have to give 100% and they still were going to win. That's kind of my takeaway. So maybe I needed to see a more high octane game. Maybe I catch a Champions League game with Club Bruges where it, it actually matters and it'll be a big, big game. So maybe that's where I'll see Hans Van Aken possibly pop off. So I don't think it's dire yet from a, if you're a big Hans Van Aken fan. But I do think it's interesting because, again, he did not take the game into his hands like I thought he would. No transition. I ended up catching the Borussia Dortmund-Hoffenheim as my second game that I caught this weekend. This game gave me nothing, man. Nothing. It was a very labored effort from both sides, dude. Super chippy game. No flow to it. At the end of the day, Dortmund looked good. They didn't create a lot of chances. The goal that they did score, though, was absolutely beautiful. A whipping ball into the box to Julian Brandt, who had a perfect 
one-time touch where it ended up falling to Marco Royce, uh, who put it home. But it was a beautiful one-time touch assist from Julian Brandt. Really encourage you guys to go catch that highlight. Probably, honestly, the only highlight of the game. It was one of those where there just was no chances, but the goal itself was beautiful. Almost maybe worth catching the whole game just to see that type of assist because it was absolutely gorgeous catch from Brandt to just lay it off to Marco Royce. But again, the rest of the game was just super chippy. So from a Belgian player perspective, because that's what I had going into the game, I was specifically looking at Thomas Mounier and Torgan Hazard. And I actually got to see both players. Bino Gittens ended up getting injured, so Torgan Hazard ended up coming on pretty early into the game. So I got to see both of them play pretty much over an hour. Again, it was hard to get a true takeaway from this game from a informed Belgian player perspective because the game itself was so chippy. I can't criticize either Hazard or Ammonia because there was never a time where they really got exposed. Hoffenheim had a really piss-poor first half. Could not get it on the ball. Did not get close to Bruce and Dortmund's defensive half. So Mournier, from a defensive perspective, didn't have to do much. He looked good on the ball. Looked involved offensively when he needed to. His one-on-one defending was excellent. He looked good. But he also didn't have any chances for him to get exposed because Hoffenheim weren't really going at Dortmund, and they just couldn't. They were second best on the day. Hoffenheim ultimately did kind of get back into it in the second half, but Dortmund still looked kind of comfortable, I'll be honest. Sure, Hoffenheim got more possession. Maybe they got a little bit closer to Dortmund's box, but ultimately Dortmund just looked comfortable and looked fine holding on to that 1-0 lead. So I guess that's a good thing uh, from a Toma Munier perspective is that he looked good, never got exposed, and just looked overall really, really solid. And I can say pretty much the same thing about Torgan Hazard. He never really got going offensively, although I will say I think Torgan Hazard is one of those weird players where he has some really spectacular games, but the majority of his games are just solid, you know? And that's kind of what I've come to expect out of Torgan now is that, like, overall he's a good, solid player, but his spectacular moments are pretty few and far in between. I think that's what you can expect if he is going to play for the Belgian national team is that he's going to give you some good minutes, but overall, I don't think he's going to be your go-to guy offensively. He's not going to be your go-to guy to create. But if you need him to come off the bench, just get fresh legs and run, defend if you need him to, or attack if you want him to get involved, he's your go-to guy. I guess those were just my major takeaways. Not much to get out of this Dortmund game, and it was mainly just because it was a stale game from just a competitive perspective. Dortmund were just too good for, for Hoffenheim, so it was pretty one-sided. Yeah, so with those two down, I finally caught a banger. Finally got rewarded Let's go. <laughs> after Let's watching go. two kind of one a very one-sided <laughs> game and the other one pretty much a stalemate where one team was just dominating. I finally caught a banger and that game was the Italian Milan Derby AC Milan against Inter Milan at the San Siro. And my God, was I entertained. And if anyone else caught this game, you know exactly what I'm talking about because this game was a feast for the eyes. It was so entertaining. One of the more high-octane games I've seen. I'd say the Newcastle-Manchester City game, so far the best game I've seen this season, and this one just under that game. The second best game I've seen so far this season, just from all perspectives, Milan against Inter Milan. What a game. Wow. Before I even get into the Belgian player analysis, I just want to say what a hotly contested game. From the get-go, you could just feel the tension in the stadium. You could feel the tension on the pitch. And you could see that these players were fired up for this game. 
every tackle had a little bit more meat on it. <laughs> every kick had just a little bit more attitude on it. These players were absolutely geared and ready to go to compete for this game. And you could absolutely see it. You could feel it. Just uh, sitting on the couch, I was like, good God, I got to go to the San Siro. I have to catch a Milan Derby at least once in my life. Bro, watching the game, you were in the stands. Yeah, I was in the stands, man. I'm not even kidding. It was incredible. The atmosphere, the noise. The fans were completely locked into the game. For 90 minutes, I was absolutely there. What a game. And I just want to say thank you so much to the players, to the people of Milan for absolutely entertaining me and everyone around the world who caught this game because this was one of the best games I've seen this season. Uh, by far, ended up being a five-goal thriller with Milan getting the edge, winning three to two. What I really loved about this game and what made this game so special was that there were so many distinct spells throughout the game where you're like, oh, wow, Milan are dominating right now. But then 20 minutes later, you'd be like, holy shit, Inter Milan have turned the tables. Now they're dominating and they, they can get a goal here. And that just happened back and forth. It was end to end. Wow. So many distinct yeah. moments throughout the game where you're just like, holy shit, what is going to happen next? Because, uh, you know, for the most part, there's always a team that's just clearly better. And even if it's hotly contested, you can always say, okay, well, that team's probably going to win. But in this game, there were moments where I was like, oh, Milan's going to win this easily. And then 20 minutes later, I'm like, holy shit, Inter Milan are getting back into this. What's going on? You could almost like see like the tides turn. Like, like, yes, like you really going, could. You, know? you could see the tides change. Players just somehow get more confident in the ball. The coach is getting into it on the sideline. You could see the change in rhythm out on the pitch with these players. It was absolutely insane. It was a defensively tactical game, but it was offensively just electric too because players were just going off individually but then there were some really good combinations with each other just an incredible incredible game one player that really really caught my eye and a player that popped off last season Rafael Leao the Portuguese striker he had an incredible game two golazos in my opinion that ultimately led Milan to get those three that three two win he went absolutely off combining with Donali in a couple of those occasions he had some incredible goals. If you have not seen his goals, you have to go check them out. Some really just catching those angles just right. Really beautiful goals. But the game started off with Lautaro Martinez, God-tier hold-up play, passing it off to Joaquin Correa. And Marcelo Brozovic, she's a gap. He just goes for it. Correa with a perfect through ball. Brozovic immediately gets the ball with a, and finishes it off with a perfect finish. Let's go. And immediately Inter Milan get that 1-0 win. But... That's what I'm talking about when you can see the rhythm change. Inter get off to that 1-0 start, but then from then on, AC Milan went off. They responded like no other, and there was a point for like a good 40 minutes I was like, wow. Because there was a point where obviously Milan ended up scoring three goals in a row, completely turning this game. And I was like, oh my God, how did Inter Milan collapse? Because they really did. Milan completely yeah. turned the tables and... Inter had no response. It was 3-1. And at that point, I was like, wow, Inter have no response. But then they came back. They bring on Edin Dzeko, super sub, gets a goal, and it's 3-2. And at that point, it was pretty much all Inter Milan from an offensive point of view for the rest of the game. And there was many half chances where it was like, holy shit, Inter Milan could have equalized. They had a great response after going down 3-1, but ultimately just could not get that last-minute equalizer that they were trying to get. You know, and a part of me thinks, what if they had Belgium number nine, Romelu Lukaku, who unfortunately was injured for this game. But I, part of me thinks if he was on the pitch, 
it definitely could have been a different result just given how lethal of a striker he is. But either way, an incredible game regardless if he was playing or not. AC Milan with a big 3-2 win. I, I can't wait for the next Milan derby. Uh, where this time where Inter will be the host, even though they share the same stadium, which is crazy. Like when you think about it, like really the only other teams I see worldwide share a stadium is like the Los Angeles Clippers and the Los Angeles Lakers. <laughs> like so yeah. rare when you have two professional teams that are on the biggest stage share a stadium. That boggles my mind that they still share it to this day. But at this point, it's tradition. And honestly, I think it just adds to that atmosphere. It, it's incredible. So I can't wait for that next derby where Inter host. But to the main theme of why I even caught this game in the first place, I specifically wanted to see Charles de Ketelaer, the young Belgian forward. And this guy's interesting, man. So he gets the start for Milan. This, this kid's interesting. He kind of reminds me positionally of a Kai Havertz or an Antoine Griezmann. Again, not in style of play because he has a completely different style. The way he touches the ball is completely different compared to those two players that I just mentioned. But positionally, he's very similar. And what I'm trying to get at is he's a secondary striker. He has that big 6'4 frame and you'd think, oh, this guy's a traditional number nine. He's going to lead the line. But no, he doesn't. He actually likes to kind of drop deep and be that secondary striker to where he can combine. Combine with his midfielders in Tonali or Benacer, or combine with his striking partners in Rafael Leao. So he plays that really interesting pocket role as the secondary striker. But what gets me about De Ketelaer is that he might be too stretched skill-wise. He might be very good at a lot of things where I think career-wise he'd be better off if he honed in on one or two very specific things. What I'm ultimately getting at is that De Ketelaer is so talented. Uh, there's moments where you'd see him penetrate, dribble inside. There's moments where you'd see him get big in the box and try to catch a header off a cross. There's moments where you'd see him do really good hold of play, drop it off to his midfielders. There's moments where you'd see him try and get creative, maybe do a through ball, maybe do a ball over the top. He does a lot and he, he has a lot of variety to his offensive game. But it kind of gets me to where what is he really good at? Because I don't think he's an elite passer yet. I don't think he's elite at hold-up play. I don't think he's the best in the box. And I'll be honest, even though it's why he ultimately gets paid, I don't know if he's the best finisher. I don't know if he's that clinical. So he's really good at all of those categories, but he doesn't shine in any particular one of them. But that's still the reason why you play him is because you know he is very good at them. He's very technical and he's very talented. And that's the thing is that he's still so, so young. So I'm really curious to see where he takes his career. I'm glad that Milan sees the talent in him. They just got him this offseason. Already he's making an impact. And this is probably the biggest game of his career, even though he's played in Champions League games back in Belgium. Uh, earlier in his career. This was probably the biggest game of his career, and I thought he passed with flying colors because, again, he had a very involved and a very good game. But I'm very curious to see what he does in the next years as he develops, as he grows up, as he turns into his prime, as he becomes a true professional. I'm curious to see the final form of Daqueta Lera because right now, I don't think anybody knows, and even if they say they do, I don't think anybody knows what the final form of Daqueta Lera is. But he's such an interesting player because you can see he has so much potential. And honestly, I love it. I love seeing players like this because it's just an X factor. And that's my ultimate takeaway for De Ketelaer is that 
I think he will play. He will feature for Martinez at this World Cup. But I'm just curious to see in what way. I could easily see him starting, maybe as that secondary striking partner alongside Romelu Lukaku. I easily could see him playing that role in that starting position. Or I could see him being that super sub. Maybe when Belgium, it's nil-nil at halftime. Martinez needs a guy to come on, give a little bit more offensive creativity. I think De Ketelaer can be Roberto Martinez's go-to guy for an offensive impetus if Belgium need goals or if they need creativity. So I think if you're Belgium, you're really excited about this guy because you don't know what you're going to get, but in a really good way. And, you know, come four years' time, maybe in 2026, Belgium might have maybe one of the best strikers on the planet is Ketelaer if he maximizes his potential. So, yeah, that was a, one of the bigger takeaways I got from this game. If you're Belgian, I'd say you're really excited about Ketelaer. So after that banger of a game that I caught in Italy, I had to come down. You know, I peaked. I had a high. <laughs> come back to earth. So I had, a, I had to come back down to earth, settle back into reality on the calm down. And to do that, I ended up watching Atletico Madrid play against Real Sociedad. So went down to Spain to catch my colchoneros, who've had an interesting start to the season. Oddly enough, I have not been able to talk about them on this podcast because they've always been playing like on Sundays or Mondays. We always have been filming before they play. So I have not been able to cover them at all. But finally, they played on a Saturday. So now here I am able to talk about them. Let's go. So let's go into <laughs> The stars it. have aligned. The stars have finally aligned. I can talk about my colchoneros here. The game itself was an interesting one. It was a game where... For the most part, I'd say Atletico dominated from a possessive point of view, but they didn't really bang on Sociedad's goal that much. There weren't a lot of shots on target. The keeper wasn't really getting tested. But, I mean, you know, for the most part, the defenses had to be alert because both teams were actually attacking each other. You know, I say Atletico maybe dominated possessively, but when Sociedad could get the ball, you know, they actually got into some space. They created some good chances. And Atletico uh, low-key got a little lucky on some with just bad finishing up for, on Sociedad's side. Actually, one of the players that stood out on Sociedad was new signing Mohamed Ali Cho. I believe he's French. He looked really good. Completely frustrating Atletico's defense, man. And he was just blowing by our players, man. I was like, damn, like, I want that guy on my team, man. <laughs> he looked really, really good. He had two really good plays in the first half where he just basically blew past our fullback, got down the byline, and sent in some two really good crosses. Both times, though, the Sociedad player on the end of it could not finish it. I was like, oh, thank God they're just not on it right now because Atletico would be down 1-2-0 or two nil at that point. Yeah, from a defensive perspective, Atletico actually getting exposed. But we settled into the game. We were able to stop Cho from penetrating as much. Our midfield started to take control of it, and eventually we got that big goal. Yeah, you know, and fortunately, Atletico at the time were already up 1-0. We got an early goal in the game. Morata getting, honestly, a pretty bizarre goal, corner kick. The ball doesn't hit anybody. It hits no players. It hits the post and bounces straight to Morata's foot. And all he has to do is just put it into the back of the net. A really bizarre goal. <laughs> a hell of an assist, if you want to call it that. But I'll take whatever we get at this point. So, yeah, so fortunately, we had that 1-0 lead kind of to go off of. But... At the beginning of the second half, even though we had settled down in that first half, I think, what, 10 minutes in that second half, guess who? Mohamed Ali Cho gets past our defender once again, creates space down that wing, sends in a long, deep ball. But this time, super sub Umar Sadiq is at the end of it, and he puts it home. So Sassadat end up equalizing, and it ends up finishing that way. Neither side could end up finishing it. Although, for me, on a personal point of view, I was a little pissed because... Those last 10 minutes of the game, we should have equalized. 
we started completely dominating. We were choking Sociedad's defense, really bunkering them into their own box, just sending in balls, constantly penetrating. But we just could not create a clear chance. We just couldn't do it. And so from that point of view, man, I was a little disappointed because I feel we did enough at the end of that game to get that second goal. But that's the thing. If you don't finish, man, you don't win games. That's the story for Atletico right now. For me, kind of another frustrating result because I do think we deserved the win. But I will say overall, Sociedad did deserve the draw. So a pretty fair game, really entertaining, some good technical plays. But now let's talk about Belgium analysis because that's why we're here. Let's go, let's go. Um, <laughs> and this one gets really interesting because I would love to know what the Belgian people, any Belgian fans, think about these two players specifically. So first I want to start off with Axel Witzel. Atletico's new signing that they got from Borussia Dortmund this summer. Off the bat, in Diego Simeone's first game of the season, he chose to put Axel Witzel as the starting center back in a back three. And it gets interesting because Witzel, for his entire career, has actually played a little bit further up the pitch in a defensive midfield position. And he plays that exact position for Roberto Martinez for the Belgium national team. In a way, he is playing out of position for Atletico. And that's the thing is that week in, week out, every day in training, he's playing as a center back for Atletico. The thing is, I don't think it's the worst change of position for Witzel because his defensive midfield attributes do translate to a sweeper center back position. He's very good at scanning the field in front of him, and he's very good at anticipating where the ball is going to go so he can cut out any offensive chances that his opponents create. Witzel's very, very good at doing that. He's an excellent defensive-minded player. So going from defensive mid to a sweeper center back position, I think does make sense from a translative point of view. But where it gets interesting is... I wonder how that's going to affect him when he gets called up by Martinez, you know, because being a center back, you have the entire pitch and the entire play in front of you. Ideally, if you're a good center back, the only person behind you is your goalkeeper. Yeah, that's it. And so where it's going to get interesting is when he goes back to play in the World Cup for Martinez, he's got to play in that midfield position. It's been Witzel de Bruyne, Witzel de Bruyne, Witzel de Bruyne. Those are the two midfielders that Martinez likes to put in the middle of the pitch. So he's going to be in that position come World Cup time. But I'm curious to see how he's going to adapt given that week in, week out, he is a center back for Atletico. And I wonder if you're Belgian, are you a little worried about that? Because I kind of would be. If you're center back, the entire play, all your opponents are in front of you. But when you get put in that midfield position, you know, you kind of have to be aware of a 360 surroundings. You got to know who's behind you. You got to know who's to your side. You got to know who's in front of you. And then you do the same thing. You scan, you try to block out plays, you try to anticipate. And that's why I'm not too, too worried because Witzel is very good at doing that. I'm wondering, will he be a little, just a little rusty come World Cup time when he has to go back to that position? I am wondering. I'm not going to say I'm worried, but I would be a little concerned. Kind of in a similar vein. The other player that does actually play for Atletico, who is Belgian, is Yannick Ferreira Carrasco. Carrasco's an interesting player, man, because, you know, for so long, he's been one of the more talented players for Belgium, one of the most offensive threats that they've had. When you think about offensive creators for this Belgium national team for the past 10 years, 
Carrasco's in that conversation. You know, I'd say De Bruyne, Lukaku, Aiden Hazard, and Yannick Carrasco have been the go-to guys as far as offensive chances are concerned when you're talking about this Belgium national team. But man, Carrasco, I'm going to go ahead and say he's been a little out of form for, I'm going to go ahead and say, maybe like a year to a year and a half now. That long? Yeah. yeah. A, a while. And it's to the point where, you know, he's had injuries. Maybe he's not always that healthy. He's not always that fit. And the thing is, Martinez, I think he also sees that too. He hasn't been calling up Carrasco that, that often. But again, it's because he was injured for a long time last year. Ultimately, I still think he's obviously going to be called up for Belgium because he's just so naturally talented. You can't not call him up because of that. But I wonder what his impact is going to be because I do think that Carrasco is out of form. From an offensive perspective, I'm actually kind of worried about the wing play on this Belgium national team because think about Hans Van Aken, the player that I saw play in Belgium this past weekend, wasn't really involved. Carrasco has been out of form for 12 months now, and it doesn't look like he's really going to get back into it. The reason why you play Carrasco is because there is a 20% chance that he's just going to do something amazing, that he's going to do something spectacular, and that's why you play him, because there's still a significant chance that he's just going to blow past the guy, do a crazy assist, or just penetrate, get past three players and score. There is that chance, so you can't risk that by not playing him, because maybe you need that in a stalemate game where it's nil-nil, and you just need somebody to do something individualistic. Right. Carrasco's that guy. He will still push for greatness at times. That is exactly it. He can still give you chances of greatness and that's the biggest reason why I would play Carrasco but again if you think about Van Aken who's a little bit out of form if you think about Carrasco who's a little bit out of form Aiden Hazard hasn't played football for two three years now since his big leg injury so offensively who do Belgium rely on centrally I think Belgium are locked in you have Romelu Lukaku you have x-factor Charles de Ketelaer and behind them you have Kevin De Bruyne who's one of the best passing midfielders of our time, still firing on all cylinders. So I think centrally, Belgium are completely fine offensively. But when you go wide, I don't think Belgium really have anybody to rely on. Vanaken doesn't look that good. Carrasco is out of form. And again, Eden Hazard is just coming off of injuries and he just cannot get match fit. He's barely getting any minutes for Real Madrid. It brings about an interesting question for Belgium. Who are going to be your creative wingers? And do you have any that are in form right now? Think about Salamakers playing for Milan, who did get some minutes in that Italian derby. I'm not fully convinced by him either. So I don't know. Going forward for this Belgium team, I'd say your biggest points of weakness are going to be your offensive wing play. Yeah, so to finish up my little Belgium scouting report, the last game that I caught was at the Amex. Brighton versus Leicester City. This was, a, this was a weird game because for me, there was only one team in it the entire time, and that was Brighton. Brighton completely dominated this game, but it was 2-2 at one point. Somehow, even though Leicester were not getting the ball, they weren't getting any offensive joy, they were able to score two goals. And so maybe, that, maybe that's a wow. cause of concern for Brighton <laughs> going forward. Like Maybe they have a leaky defense, possibly. But the goals that Leicester did create were good goals. Ultimately, Brighton just ran away with it. The game ended 5-2. to two. Not the most riveting game, 
Brighton played some excellent football. I'll give them that. Moises Caicedo going off, getting his first goal of his career in the Premier League, which is a big milestone, I think, for any Ecuadorian player. So really happy for Caicedo. Alexis McAllister with some bangers, scoring uh scoring an absolute screamer that ultimately got called off, I think, because oh. the play ended up, I think it was either a foul or it was offside, one of the two. But he ended up redeeming that by scoring an absolute cracker of a goal with a free kick later in the game. So McAllister going off, Caicedo going off, Welbeck getting involved. Brian looked really, really good. Leandro Trossard having some really good ISO plays where he just started dancing, blowing hey. past Ndidi, drawing the penalty. So Brighton looked like they were having fun out there, and they really entertained me from that point of view, man. So Brighton looking really good. Leicester looked horrible, bro. They looked <laughs> terrible, man. They couldn't touch the ball. They couldn't make more than three passes, man. It was it that was, drastic. It was that drastic, wow. dude. And that's what I'm saying. It was such a weird game, man, because somehow they managed to score two goals. Honestly, for a large majority of the game, it was actually a tight game goal-wise. But like the eye test, wow. what you saw on the pitch, there was only one team, and that was Brighton. Thank God the score at the end of the day reflected how dominant Brighton were by ending 5-2. to two. Thank God. Because they absolutely deserved it, man. The players I actually wanted to see were on, you know, piss-poor Leicester's side. Because <laughs> uh, they have like four Belgian players, man. Dennis Prout, really? Voigt Feiss, Jordi Tielemans, and Timothy Castan. Only two of them played, though. That was Castan and Tielemans. So I was actually really excited to see Tielemans specifically because I think he does have a role to play for Martinez come World Cup time. It'll be interesting, though, because it, where does he actually fit in? He has so much talent. He ended up getting a crazy assist, actually, on, against Brighton on this game. A beautiful over-the-top ball that eventually Pats and Daka finished. So Tielemans, from that small snippet of play, looked good. But for the rest of the game, man, just could not get on the ball. But thing is, I don't know if I blame him because... Leicester as a whole were really, really bad. So I can't be too critical of Tielemans because just no, it wasn't just him. The entire 11 of Leicester just looked completely out of sync. They looked off it. They were not a good club on the day. I think they're bottom of the league right now. They have no wins in their first five matches. I think that's their fourth loss or third loss in a row. Yikes. Really bad for Leicester. Yeah, really, really bad to the point where... I'd actually be get a little concerned if you're a Leicester fan because this might end in relegation if they don't figure this out. I don't know what they have to do to solve this. Maybe they have to fire Rodgers, but that's not what I'm here to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just not looking good for Leicester, man. I'll end it up with that. But again, Tielemans, I think he does have a role to play for Belgium, even though club-wise his team is just not looking good. But the reason why I say that is because he does have a lot of skill on the ball, off the ball. He's a really good passer. But he's also pretty dynamic as a central midfielder. He's not going to be that guy that gets too offensively involved because he does like doing the defensive side of things too. But when you need him to make that big through bar, you need him to do that really good ball over the top, a big switch, Tielemans has the class and the ability to mm. do that. So that's why I think regardless of how poor Leicester ultimately do going into the World Cup, I think Tillmans will easily get the call up. And I think he will have a part to play for Belgium this winter. Where it gets curious though is I don't see him starting and that's only because De Bruyne and Witzel are just, they're just too good. And they completely occupy those two starting central midfielder roles for Martinez. 
But I can see Tielemans easily coming into rotation if they need some sort of offensive impetus. Tielemans can be that guy where maybe you take off Witzel, you sacrifice a bit of defensive-mindedness, and you just put two offensive-minded midfielders in De Bruyne and Tielemans. It might expose them a little bit defensively, but if Belgium need a goal, bringing Tielemans off the bench I think is a great choice to have if you're Roberto Martinez, man. So I think Tillens will have a part to play this winter. And as for Castan, he's been getting a lot of calls for Belgium. <sighs> Couldn't really analyze his play because he just wasn't getting on the ball. He was getting blown past a lot by these Brighton players. But you could say that about pretty much any of those Leicester players, man. They were that bad. So Castan probably will get the call up regardless just because... He's been solid when he does play for Belgium. Martinez likes him. He likes starting him out wide as that wing back. And I don't really know who could really replace him, honestly. Maybe Salamakers, but it just depends on if Salamakers gets more minutes than Castan, if he's more in form. Right now, I think it's hard to tell. But I guess from an in form point of view, I don't know if Castan's in the best form. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying about Carrasco. Wing wise, Belgium might have some holes that they might not be able to replace come World Cup time. So yeah, those are my two takeaways from those Belgian players. But a player that's also interesting that wasn't on Leicester that was for Brighton, Leandro Trossard, man, hasn't really been getting that many call-ups. But again, it's just because for so many years, it's been Aiden Hazard. It's been De Bruyne from a creative perspective or Carrasco as a wingback. But Trossard has been making a case, man, at club level, going off with Brighton for these past two seasons. He has been making a case for himself to get called up and to have some sort of role to play for Belgium this winter, bro. Because I could see him maybe starting over Hazard. Uh, actually, I could easily see him starting over Hazard. But the question will be, does Martinez go with that? Because Martinez hasn't really given Trossard those minutes yet. But it's because... Trossard has just gotten going. He just started, he's a late bloomer. You know, he just started going club-wise last year where he popped off for Brighton and he's continued that run of form. So if you're talking about players in form from an offensive, creative perspective, bro, Leandro Trossard is your guy for Roberto Martinez. But again, I wonder though, I do wonder if he's going to play him because he just hasn't built that relationship with him, coach to player yet. But maybe he says, you know what? Maybe I have that faith in him. He's playing so good for Brighton. Maybe he gives him those minutes. I think it'd be a risk worth taking just because he is in such good form right now for Brighton. Okay, so with all that in mind, just kind of have you've you've laid out basically this this thesis, if you will. If you will. I get the sense that you're trying to say that Belgium is not accurately ranked as second. And I think that's a fair assessment. Ultimately, after watching these five games where I try to scout out these Belgian players. If you say a team is in the top five in the world, to me that means they have to make a deep, deep run. I'm talking semifinals, no less. I'm talking about a team that can ultimately lift the trophy come the end of the World Cup. I don't think Belgium have it in them to do it. That's my ultimate analysis at this, and here's why. Maybe I'm repeating myself, but I think it's worth repeating. Centrally, you have probably some of the best in the world. Romelu Lukaku, X-Factor Charles de Ketelaer, Kevin De Bruyne, one of the best attacking midfielders, one of the best passers of the ball in the modern game. You have Kevin De Bruyne. And then alongside him, you have elite defensive-minded player Axel Witzel. So essentially, Belgium are a top two, top three international team on the stage. But that's the thing. To be a World Cup winning side... You can't just have three, four good players. 
you have to have a team. You have to have 11 players out there alongside your stars who fill in those holes where maybe you're lacking a little bit. You have to have players that can combine with your stars, players that can participate, whether it's defensively, offensively. Other than those four players that I just mentioned, I don't really see any other players filling in those holes enough to make Belgium a true title contender. Carrasco, Torgen Hazard, Eden Hazard, Hans Van Aken, Timothy Castan, if you will, all of their wide players, I don't know if I see enough offensively. And that's the thing. You need some sort of wing play. You cannot just play centrally. I'm going to question Belgium's creativity from a wing perspective. I don't know if they have what it takes to be a truly elite, complete team. Centrally, they look great. Wing-wise, I just don't see it. I think a lot of their players who were incredible for them in years past, I'm talking about 2020, 2018, 2016, all of these players that made up the Belgian golden generation, they're all wing players. They're all wide, creative players. They're all out of form right now. And so looking at the sum of all of this, sure, they have some elite players and they will be very tough to beat. Their backline looks very solid with Boyata Vertonghen. You add in world-class goalkeeper Thibaut Courtois in between the sticks, they're going to be very tough to beat. But again, to lift the World Cup, you have to be elite in every single position. And I think there's too much weakness out wide for Belgium to say that they can lift the trophy at the end of the tournament. All right, so right now we're going to actually do a little segment here. We're going to react to some new World Cup kits that just dropped. And to do that, I have my good friend right here. Reynoso 2. Reynoso 2 coming at you live from the studio. I'm excited for these World Cup kits. Um, I know y'all talk the physicalities and technicalities of football, but I'm really excited about the visual appeal of, of jerseys on, this, on the pitch. So there's yeah, nothing yeah. more than, that I love than to just see the jerseys, you know? <sighs> yeah. the, how aesthetically will a country represent themselves during this time, right? Yeah, bro. So yeah, I just wanted to get into a couple that I had seen um, oh, A couple that earlier. stood out, maybe? That stood out just oh, you know, okay, a tad. Okay. And we'll start off with Mexico. I feel like they have always have a good array of colors and um, different types of use in their jerseys. But this one specifically stood out to me. We Dude. see, as we were talking about um, earlier before the shoot, you said they had a lot of cultural influence on the jersey. Bro, it really does. Like, they've never gone this deep into mm -hmm. the cultural influence when it comes to World Cup kids, bro. Yeah, I agree. No, I agree. And the solid maroon on the lining, um, as well as the details, I think it's... It looks so good on the pitch, you know? Yeah. I'm just ready to see it. Strikers, center backs, everybody just yeah, yeah. attacking as they go. Yeah. Um, Unified, and it'll be crazy seeing against like that classic Argentine colors. Oh, yeah. Against Saudi Arabia, man. It's going to be, it's very distinct, bro. Very distinct. Really distinct, very for, distinct. for a Mexico kid, man. I'd be proud to wear it as a Mexican. Yeah, I yeah. would be proud to wear it, you know, to make sure that people know where it's from. For real, um, bro. I, shit, I might even get one. Just, <laughs> just because it, it's so different than what they usually do. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's going to be one of those that you look back a couple of years on, and you're going to yeah. be like, I wish I would have gotten that one, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. classic, a classic staple. Moving on from that. That one, yes, you just said the Argentina. I see the Argentina away jerseys. Not very classic. I've seen, I feel like we've seen this um, classic blue before, but the flames, I feel like that's a big important factor Dude, in this Argentina jersey. Yeah. Just gives it a unique touch, you know? It really does. It's almost like a, is that like a lavender at the bottom? At the bro? bottom, just a little bit of purple. It's a to little mix tinge. In. Yeah. Man. Low key, I'll be honest, at first, I don't know if I liked it, but the right. more I look at it, it's actually. You know, pretty fire. <laughs> yeah, no, no, quite literally. 
I feel the exact same way. Yeah, I yeah. saw these first on Twitter, and um, mm. I, I didn't know if I liked them at first, but then the more I thought about it, and I was like, yeah, messy, messy. That one might look, might look nice. That you know, might look nice. I think, I think it'll work. It'll work. Yeah. And then we have a Puma selection, if you will, right? Puma dropped a couple. I think it was like eight jerseys of theirs that they sneak peeked on um, the internet. Yeah, as they all have like a, they all have like a similar, a similar style. And yeah. Puma's interesting. You know, they're not known for their jerseys or their fashion necessarily as Nike or Adidas are. But with this World Cup kits that they pulled out, I was really impressed, honestly. Yeah. Especially with this Morocco one, right? So right here we have the 1998 Morocco jersey. I feel like they took a lot of inspiration from the previous, brought it oh. to life in the new. Oh, they really, really mm -hmm. did. Sleek. I love how the detailing on the collar and the and the sleeve. Oh, the sleeve, yeah. Just plain, but I love it though, you know? Yeah. That'd be nice to see on the pitch. I really like, I don't know what it is, but I really like that ring around the, ah. the central number. Mm -hmm. It's 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 faded, so it's really subtle. Right, right. But if you look closer at it, there's a lot of detail there. The detailing, it's yeah. It's pretty cool, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. That's definitely one to look out for. I feel like that's, that might be honestly top, top five for me jerseys yeah. right there yeah because that's it's just so simple but it's so it's like nice and, and unique it's like it, i it's vintage i get that 90s mm -hmm. vibe the 90s one did you know that no so actually i, I looked it up yeah i looked it up i looked it up <laughs> like past world cup jersey just to compare likewise the mexico one too they have the old mexico jerseys from 1998 as well have a similar cultural oh, um whoa dude i, I didn't know that mm -hmm. yeah oh, wow so maybe you know we're seeing a callback from previous years throwbacks, these, yeah throwbacks into these these new world cups that's i think will be interesting to see and uh, yeah. i'm excited for that's uh switzerland's oh okay it's kind of dope looks like a credit card <laughs> <laughs> This one I really liked. I really liked the Germany 2022 World Cup kits. I feel like the 20, 2014 Germany World Cup kits where they won the World Cup, they were really iconic. You know, the all white with the, what was it, like maroon, red, yeah, black, yeah. just striping on here. I thought it was really, really cool. And I loved how they integrated it over the whole jersey um, in this new one. I thought it was cool. Yeah, I'm excited, man. I'm excited to see what, what other teams have to offer and yeah. just the aesthetic visuals of the World Cup. All right, guys. Well, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of The Give and Go. I really do appreciate all the love as always. Maybe we'll have Reynoso back in the next shoot. Honestly, I don't know anymore. <laughs> but let me know y'all's thoughts on Belgium, their situation. I love any sort of conversation, whether you agree with me or disagree with me. I love reading y'all's comments. Yeah, and let me know if there's another international team that you guys want me to actually do a deep dive scouting report on. That actually be fun. And thanks again for watching. We'll see y'all next week. Thank you.